0: This is the inaugural Pittsburgh DSA Reading Capital podcast. In future installments, we'll be reading Karl Marx's Capital, Volume 1 in its entirety. But for this introductory recording, we'll be discussing the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. According to Marx's scholar, Robert C. Tucker, the Communist Manifesto has become the most widely read and influential single document of modern socialism, making it a potential great starting point. But as this is the first session, it might be useful to spend a little more time introducing ourselves. So if we could just go around and say our preferred name, level of experience with Marxism, uh, what we hope to get out of Reading Capital, and what was your very earliest exposure to Marxism, communism, or any brand of the left which ultimately led you to the DSA? I suppose I'll go first. Uh, My name is Levi Raymond Petler. I can just go by Levi my level with Marxism is, I suppose I'm slightly above novice. I had to read a lot of Marxism as part of my graduate degree, but I cannot say that I read it with much vigor. I hope to get a practical understanding of Marxism, how it applies to politics in the United States as we discuss capital. And my earliest exposure to Marxism uh, was through the video game Command and Conquer, because I would always play as the Soviets. (laughs) And that led me to choose to write about joseph stalin when i was asked to write about the potential heroes and villains of history and how they could be interchanged easily because i knew the soviets were the best military in command and conquer so i assumed they did something good in world war ii <laughs> that's what kind of led me into a more sympathetic understanding of marxism that's awesome <laughs> hell yeah hey
1: everybody my name's nick Dranick. you could just call me nick d i would just say nick but we have a couple.
2: <laughs> Curse of Pittsburgh DSA. <laughs> yeah.
3: Saxon Nix is what it is.
2: <laughs> and Mads.
1: It's only been recently that I've actually started reading any of this, but I would say my general understanding of Marxism and socialist theory is probably leaps and bounds above the general population. You know, that being said, I think I'm trying to get out of reading this a better understanding of where it all started. I'm still trying to figure out where on the spectrum of Marxist-Socialist thought I actually fall. It can be a little intimidating when people are throwing out Marxist-Trotskyist, Maoist, all these different terms. And I don't know where exactly I fit. Thinking about where all this started seeping into my consciousness, I'd have to go back to listening to punk and hip-hop in high school and just sort of filtering in through that. Rage Against Machines Machine specifically, actually reading the liner notes. And I think on their first album, they listed a bunch of books. And I started reading some of these books and it's like, hey, they didn't teach me any of this. This is uh, definitely something different.
3: Go ahead, MJ. We'll break up the next. <laughs>
2: okay. Um, my name is MJ. Um, I use they, them pronouns. I'm familiar with Marx in that I've read the manifesto before and like essays, but I'm kind of newer into reading the old theory. Let's put it that way. I read a lot of zines and anarchist stuff, like anarchist essays and things like that when I was in my early 20s. I've been trying to read a little bit more theory so that I can articulate my views a little better because I often, you know, when you have debates about your philosophy or what you believe in. And I'm usually just like, I'm not going to convince you. <laughs> so um, it would be, it's useful to like know a little bit more, be able to like put some words to the things that I believe in. My first introduction to Marx, I was 14 and I told my parents I was a communist because I wanted to be edgy. And my dad said, if you're going to be a communist and you're going to have to read this. And he handed me the Communist Manifesto. That's the first time I've read it since then. <laughs> I nice
3: guess I'll finish it up. Uh, So Nick Marco, use Nick, but we'll go with Nick M since we've got Nick D here as well. I guess I'm pretty much a novice really to both Marx and the left. Though I'm doing as much as I possibly can to learn as much as I can as quick as I can. So this will be helpful for that. In terms of reading capital specifically, I try to listen to a lot of like people like Richard Wolf and David Harvey. So I got a good introduction to it, but I want to read it for myself. And, you know, similar to what you guys are saying, really understand how it applies today and how it can formulate kind of my ideology. And again, deal with these refutations and arguments you get at why it won't work. Really being able to point out these contradictions in capitalism and the system, I think, is going to be helpful as long as we can do it in a constructive way with people. In terms of my earliest exposure, like I said, I'm pretty new. I just joined DSA in January. I think I went from raised conservative went liberal, became a disillusioned liberal, and then tried to figure out why I was disillusioned. (laughs) So I think that's kind of the path that's, you know, led me here. So definitely
0: excited. It's good to hear everybody seems to want to learn the more practical aspects of Marxism. So we can sort of begin with a very practical question of what the heck is being argued in the Communist Manifesto. So writing in January 1888, 40 years after the manifesto's publication, uh, Engels gave a lengthy one sentence summary of the Communist Manifesto Quote, In every historical epoch, the prevailing mode of economic production and exchange and the social organization necessarily following from it, from the basis upon which it is built up, and from along which can be explained the political and intellectual history of that epoch. That, consequently, the whole history of mankind, since the dissolution of primitive tribal society, holding land in common ownership, has been a history of class struggles contests between exploiting and exploited, ruling and oppressed classes, that the history of these class struggles forms a series of evolutions in which nowadays a stage has been reached where the exploited and oppressed class, the proletariat, cannot obtain its emancipation from the sway of the exploiting and ruling class, the bourgeoisie, without, at the same time, and once and for all, emancipating society at large from all exploitation, oppression, class distinction and class struggles. Marx and Engels themselves were a lot more succinct uh, in 1848 when they wrote near the beginning of part one, the theory of communists may be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property. So all of that aside, what did people really draw as the most fascinating or greatest argument of this pamphlet?
2: I highlighted a lot from the first section because again, like the last time I read this, I was a literal teenager. And I just remember reading it and being like, yeah, like, you know, Western education, and I I can't speak to any other form of education, really does rely very heavily when it comes to history on like great man theory on the idea that like history is just the series of actions by individuals. You know, when you first kind of come into contact with the concept that like, actually, history is a series of forces acting themselves on people. It sort of change, yeah, it changes the game pretty substantially.
3: Yeah, I think the education bit, particularly, is important in terms of the instant reaction of our society to the idea of communism or Marxism because it's so ingrained to be anti to that because we're really not raised to question capitalism, right? Like in the system because capital controls the system ultimately. So I think, yeah, that's, that's great. For me, in terms of going back to your question, Levi, it was like the systematic way in which he argues against things like you want to protect property or, you know, you claim we abolish property, but like we have no property to abolish. You know, most of the property is only held by one-tenth of the people, right? And then he touches on the institutions that are kind of part of our culture. He calls it like bourgeois marriage or whatever the term he uses there. But like all these institutions are held by this ruling class. And it's like, you're just setting up this system to protect yourself. This is why we're here, you know?
0: Yeah, I think building off of what MJ said, what I really drew the most out of this was the just how shocking it was when I first read this. I read this, I don't know if I was 14, but I was around that same age, and I had only ever heard of these great man theories about how Andrew Carnegie built the railroads and built the libraries and Rockefeller gave us cars, or I guess that was Henry Ford gave us cars. It always seemed just wrong after reading the manifesto or reading these sort of arguments about class and struggle. And I also remember reading it and thinking, like, wow, this is like my father. Like, he doesn't have any of the means of production. He's literally jumping around job from job and barely making ends meet. Yet he's this sort of Reagan conservative. Like, what, what is going on here? And I remember thinking, you know, what is this big disconnect that's happening? Why don't more people see this or read this and just being kind of flabbergasted?
3: One question I had, though, like, you know, we we frame it as like people should really easily access this thing and it should open their eyes a little bit. And I think it does for a lot of people. But on the flip side, like, you know, I I think I'm thinking back to listening to like Peterson debate Zizek, right? I don't know if you guys listen to that. But like just in general, my point is that, you know, it seems like reactionaries will tend to, if they've read anything on this level, they'll have read this and they'll use this as the basis to kind of quickly dismiss you know, any Marxist theory. So, like, two questions really that I had is this the best introduction to it? And then, why is it weaponized and co opted by reactionaries to refute, you know, this ideology in its entirety? One
1: thing I find interesting you talk about people reacting negatively towards Marxism, which I think almost proves that it's still valid. One of the biggest things that was striking to me reading through this is. You know, how much of what Marx and Engels have been talking about in the 19th century, it still happens today. I mean, they put in this text stuff that you could say the Republicans are using as talking points to uh, tell us why socialism is so bad. People are still doing it today. So I don't know if this is the best place to start, but just for the fact that it's still relevant today proves that it's there's something to it.
2: I'm of two minds. Like on one side, I do think that this is the best place to start because I think that even though like a lot of Marx's ideas, I know were developed more later. I haven't read a lot of Marx, but I have read Engels and Engels' views are a little more articulated. One of the things that like I love about the Communist Manifesto is that it is propaganda. Angry? <laughs> it's propaganda. It makes you feel a thing. It makes you feel like, Yeah, I mean, like, the last line, I don't know what translation you guys have, but mine says, the proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains, they have a world to win. Like, come on, that's awesome. Right. On one hand, is this the best representation of pure Marxism? Maybe not. And some parts of it are a little confusing, like, section three is basically all just, like, kind of history, directly responding to, like, other parties at the time, but it's short. It's easy to read, and it is, like, pretty emotionally powerful.
3: I guess to go back to what I was saying, is that why we think maybe reactionaries can kind of co-opt it and, like, weaponize it because it is propaganda and stuff? I mean, maybe that's just inevitable and, like, maybe you can't get over that, but maybe that's my answer, you know?
2: I don't know. I guess I didn't I didn't see the Zizek saying, so I don't know what or the, the Peterson thing. I don't know what he was kind of picking at in the, in the manifesto, but it is, I mean, like, there are parts of it where you can say, like, you know, he does straight up talk about, like, the dictatorship of the proletariat and the centralization of the state. So I could see somebody, like, you know, wedging that, but you can basically pick up any other piece of Marxist writing and be like, that's debatable,
0: you know? Right. I think what's even funny, and just because it's a piece of propaganda itself, it anticipates arguments that are, as Nick said, still being made. In part two, he writes, and it's just a great use of language, you are horrified at our intending to do away with private property, but in your existing society, private property is already done away with for nine-tenths of the population. Its existence for the few is sole to the non-existence in the hands of those nine-tenths. I mean, you could say that today when somebody yells at you, you really want to do away with private property, and you could literally respond the exact same way. It's already gone. Nine-tenths of us have no access to private property. That one-tenth that you're protecting has no interest in protecting your private property. And that might be part of what makes it an easy cudgel, even today, is the arguments themselves include their refutation. But if you take away the refutation, it appears to be not very good. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I
2: was just going to say, I think the private property thing is a good wedge, just because, like, in America, we've been kind of taught that ownership of property is the kind of gateway to the middle class. And so people are like, well, you want to abolish private property, you want to take away my single family ranch home. And it's like, no, that's not, maybe some people do, but like, <laughs> that's not exactly what this is describing.
3: Yeah, and it's because like, we have this culture of the individual, like I have this one section underlies from the moment, yeah, we've I just read it. But yeah, individuality vanishes <laughs> at the end, right? The reactionary thing is to weaponize, like, this loss of individuality, and I think that's so pertinent for us today. It's at the end of page 23, and I think it's so relevant for us today in, like, American culture, because it is all about the individual, right?
0: I think he's even more complicated than that to read, what I assume is the same. I don't have the same book as you, but he says, and the abolition of the state of things is called by the bourgeoisie abolition of individuality and freedom. So he says, by the bourgeoisie, and then he continues, and rightly so. The abolition of bourgeois individuality, bourgeois independence, and bourgeois freedom is undoubtedly our aim. So he's not arguing that there's no such thing as individuality, independence, or freedom. He's arguing that we don't have that right now. All that we have is this weird bourgeois definition of individuality, independence, and freedom that we're fighting for that is never going to actually be free, individual, or independent.
3: Right. And I guess I was like... Getting to the reaction is to kind of weaponize the illusion of of individuality to stir up the masses to continue to protect capital ultimately. Because like the illusion and he gets into like the middle class a little bit in some sections and like the small proprietor ultimately holding on to like the future state of what they might have based on their position, not what they have right now. The American dream, right?
2: There's bourgeois values like that's just what it talked about to me was like the concept of bourgeois values education so that you can get a better job. Not education for the sake of knowledge, but education so that you can get a better job. Like, things like that.
0: So to get to sort of the the ultimate concrete concepts that are discussed in this, or at least in my opinion, I, I have this quotation from Marx and Engels in 1872 in which they state that the general principles laid down this manifesto are, on the whole, as correct today as ever. Though they admitted that because of particular application. They recommend that no special stress be aid on the revolutionary measures proposed at the end of Section Two, so in spite of their suggestion to not think about it too much, I think it is actually worth looking at Section Two and see what they even give as the ten measures which they claim need to be enacted in order to have this communist future. So, what do people think about these as soon as they can find them?
1: One thing that struck me kind of humorous, is a few of
0: these, at least, are
1: being talked about right now in Congress. The uh, progressive or graduated income tax, things of that nature, and some of them are being talked down on, but it's interesting. I, I feel like some of this stuff has actually seeped into what we see as a democratic society in the United States, and people just take it
0: for granted. I think number 10 is one of the more interesting that we take for granted in theory, if not in practice.
1: Yeah, that was the one I was
0: thinking. Yeah, Free education for all children in public schools, abolition of children's factory labor in its present form, and combination of education with industrial production, etc., etc.
2: I mean, it's it's interesting, though, because in the United States, like, we do have free public education. However, our public education is just a tool of indoctrination. I mean, like, not to get too anarchist about it, but education from a centralized perspective is going to be used as a method of basically producing the outcome that you want, right? Yeah, we technically have free education, but, like, how much education actually is there and how much of it is indoctrination?
3: on that in that same line the abolition of children's factory labor but yeah sure here maybe but like you know we still rely on it to get our cheap goods and things like that in a lot of the world that we along with the rest of the global north have kind of imperialized right sure we take that for granted here and i think because we're the shining city on the hill right or whatever <laughs> but it doesn't mean it's happened everywhere for sure
1: you know one thing i was curious about and this might just be because of the time it was written but the combination of education. With industrial production, were they advocating that education should be free, but the kids should be also producing to some extent at the same time?
0: I don't know the historical basis of that claim. My guess would be no, since it also immediately states that children should not be working uh, in factories.
2: I would assume it's referring to like, you aren't, labor isn't required to like, you get the opportunity to get an education regardless of your labor i think that would be my guess but my translation is to be fair not great
3: which one are y'all using i just got that one that off the org one
2: i had a class in college that had a bunch of like mao and marx essays in it i don't know it cost like a
0: dollar mine was uh, apparently the same one that's on the website it's one that was edited by angles himself okay
1: I'm using whatever was on the uh, website, Yes. (laughs) All right.
0: So everybody's using the website. Yeah. Part
2: of my issue with it is all of the centralization stuff. I think a lot of people see centralization and immediately think like, yes, that is the end goal, is complete consolidation of all power and finance into one centralized state. And got to say, not into that.
3: And I think that's something people end up misconstruing though about Marx because I think it comes out in here and that like he sees it state socialism as a transitory thing but like what people don't realize is that that apparatus is that he describes is intended to be controlled by the proletariat right so I think we all probably recognize that on some level but that's one of the things that people point to and they're like no see they want Stalin
2: Right. And I mean, like, you, you, there's a lot of stuff about this when it comes to, like, council communism or syndicalism, libertarian forms of socialism. But, yeah, very much that, like, the state is the dictatorship of the proletariat. And the dictatorship of the proletariat is complete ownership of everything in, like, 100% democracy. So autonomy and also everybody owns everything equally. There's no vanguard party. There's no, like, state there's no Knesset,
0: you know? Right. Yeah, one of the most interesting ones that popped out to me is, uh, what he lists as the ninth? It says, combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries, gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country by a more equitable distribution of the population across the country. That to me just seems to be the most unexpected. I didn't remember ever reading or hearing about that concrete suggestion. And it really struck me as inappropriate when we think about today. But of course, he stated it was inappropriate by the late 1800s in terms of this isn't going to apply to every country and every situation everywhere. So it's kind of easy to nitpick on things that we disagree with in these 10 because he himself didn't agree with them by the time he was older.
2: So that's the thing that's interesting. My translation is different. My translation says, and I highlighted this because I thought it was so notable, combination of agricultural and industrial labor in order to remove the distinction between town and country.
0: It doesn't mention actually redistributing people.
2: Nope, not at all. Oh, wow. And why I thought that was notable was because, like i agree <laughs> you know there is there is a degradation of agricultural and rural labor of farm labor of these types of labor and types of lifestyles that are very rural and agricultural and so the idea of like combining the plights of the urban labor with agricultural labor in order to not make one better than the other, to put everybody on an even plane, I thought was like very interesting. But it is, it, yeah, My like I said, my translation is very weird. <laughs> but I, I the way it's translated in my book, I quite like.
1: Yeah, I would totally agree with that translation, which just for anybody out there, and I don't necessarily know that anybody here right now knows the answer to this, but I'm kind of curious what the quote-unquote, purest translation of
0: this is. I assume you'd have to talk to a German person that's read the original.
1: And that's the thing, because what we just got here now, two different translations, I take those translations completely differently. The one, I don't think it applies so much nowadays, and the other, I think, is great.
3: I guess one thing, I guess, reading in the context, if you go earlier on into section one, it's got a line, the bourgeoisie has subjected the country to the rule of the towns It has created enormous cities, has greatly increased the urban population as compared with the rural, and thus rescued a considerable part of the population from the idiocy of rural life. So, like, I guess with that, and I don't know, that may differ between translations as well, but, like, how are we to read that? Because I think it applies in either way that we've talked about reading that line number nine, this idea of the idiocy of rural life that marx and Engels put out there like how are we to read that i mean does he just see this kind of joining of the industries making the idea of rural life as it stood then like go away
2: i don't know it's, it's it's interesting to think about especially in the context of like the cultural revolution in china and in soviet russia like glorification of of rural life and agricultural labor
0: I know in Laos, which isn't a very great example on any level, they intentionally took individuals from the city that had been intellectuals and moved them into farms and made them work on the farm, not under people that had been farmers, but just taking over a farm, just sort of dropping them in there. Uh, And they had horrific results, obviously, because you can't just take somebody trained for one job and drop them into another job and assume that they're just going to be able to seize and understand the complexities of rural life, or the opposite, drop somebody from a farm to just be a professor of philosophy uh, in a university in a city. Even though I believe that anybody can be trained to do either of those jobs, it's necessary to understand that training is necessary to understand reality.
2: I do think it would be cool if we forced all tenured professors to, like, I don't know, work at Starbucks. (laughs) (laughs) That would be awesome. (laughs)
0: We can uh, bring that up at the next DSA meeting. (laughs) Or maybe Bezos to go work in, you know, the best distribution plant,
2: right? Yes. (laughs) I can think of some other places I would rather him go, but... Yeah. I will keep those to myself.
0: More suitable. (laughs) (laughs) So to sort of build off that sort of observation that uh, Nick has made, at the end of part one, Marks and Engels write... That the dangerous classes, and this is uh, originally translated from the Lumpen Proletariat, are the social scum that passively rotting mass thrown off by the lowest layers of the old society may here and there be swept into the movement by a proletarian revolution. Its conditions of life, however, prepare it far more for the part of a bribed tool of reactionary intrigue. So these individuals belong apparently neither to the proletariat nor the bourgeoisie, but are just agents of chaos that are capable of being bribed one way or the other. And it just really makes me wonder, who are these individuals? And this appears to be, at least in my translation, the only time it's mentioned. But it also appears to be pretty relevant in terms of what we were just talking about.
1: I don't know about anybody else, but for me, that makes me think of what everybody's calling the uh, political grifter these days. All these people that are more or less just peddling ideas to make money off of it. and You could come up with all sorts of examples on the right, but they certainly exist on the left. You know, I certainly wouldn't call James Carville a socialist by any means, but this was recently in the news, social media, what have you. He's ranting and raving about how the Democrats have a woke problem and just going on and on about what he sees as the problem of the Democratic Party today. And, you know, he was talking about don't say defund the police. He was essentially bringing up Republican talking points, but it, it made me think that it's really just he doesn't have any ideals. He's really just doing it for for a paycheck, and you could pretty much insert him into right, left, center, whatever. I, I don't think he's really pushing anything forward, and I'm sure you could probably find some people a little better Suited towards what you might call socialist or leftist thought, they're doing the same
0: thing. That's interesting. I read that a little bit differently. I had assumed he was talking about, and this might even link up with what you're saying, individuals that fit neither as bourgeoisie nor as proletariat and just have a sort of selfish, you know, they're out for themselves, but they can adapt either ideology. What I understand you're saying are those sort of betrayers that are bourgeoisie, they're out to make a profit, they're out to grift other people by telling them what they want to hear and taking their money, which there's no better capitalist endeavor than taking money from fools. So to me, these proletariat are somehow not bourgeoisie and somehow not proletariat at all. They're just the lowest layers of the society swept into the movement. Are they criminals? Are these individuals that don't fit into society on any level, the ne'er-do-wells? He seems to believe that they're incredibly dangerous, but doesn't really describe what they are.
1: That also makes me think about organized labor and the criminal element that has been associated with that from time to time, and my own personal experience with a few unions. Honestly, the people at the top, they really, I don't think they believed anything. They, could do. Like, they were just there to uh, make money. And I think that's a that's a problem that the right in this country has exploited greatly, and it's also a problem for the left because it weakens the movement.
3: Yeah, so I really read this. I don't know, maybe a little bit differently. Lowest layers of the old society. I I don't know. I guess because if I'm thinking about it in terms of like, if he's he's really talking about in the context of when I mean, he's talking about the old society, he's talking about the low layers of like feudal society right I guess at this point in time maybe it's like these people that are kind of being left behind maybe they had something maybe they didn't you know what I mean but they're not they're not rising into the bourgeoisie but maybe they had a chance to or something some of them get swung into the proletarian working class and I think it's part of this movement that he kind of he talks about like or they talk about kind of this general movement towards really two distinct kind of dominant classes, right? The proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And he's saying this is a class that can kind of partake in this partition, but that some of them, you know, a lot of them can also be weaponized in that way to kind of go reactionary. And I don't know, I read this as kind of, among other things in here, as like a precursor to kind of like a mechanism of fascism starting. That among some other things that he mentions in here that I'd like to start with. But, like, ultimately, like, people who really have no interest, who should have no interest protecting capital, but, you know, through some mechanism or the other that they think they can get ahead, they want to protect what little that they have, can kind of swing in that direction.
2: I guess my, what everybody has said has kind of changed my perspective on it a little bit. On one hand, what I would imagine or assume just in some historical context, what this is referring to is people who aren't workers but aren't bourgeoisie either. Like, they are just there. They're not able to work. They can't work. They don't work for whatever reason. Um, so, they can't technically be considered the proletariat because they're not laborers, but they are also not the bourgeoisie. I guess, like, I've always thought of the lumpen proletariat. The, the way I initially thought of it is that, like, by the way, our society's evolved, like, I would consider most people lumpen proletariat anymore. Like, they're. Labor isn't something that we think about really doing, I guess, in a conscious way, the way that you would have back at this time when you were doing like factory jobs. So, like, you know, you're working at Walmart, you're working at the doctor's office as the like, you know, medical billing specialist or whatever. Like, these non specialized, well, medical billing specialist is a specialized job that you have to train for. But, like, You know, Chipotle, Starbucks, service industry, like, these things, these jobs that, like, the labor that you're performing is very distinct from the labor of building or making something. Like, the thing that you're making or doing is extremely transient. And so... I would think of that as being like the lumpen proletariat. You know, like you've got mammas and pep peps working at Walmart and like getting into QAnon because what else do they have to do? I mean, like, what do they have mooring them to reality? Absolutely fucking nothing. And the other side hasn't made a convincing case. So to fascism, they move. I also find it very interesting. I hope that there's more in Capital about the lumpen proletariat, but I honestly don't know if there is.
0: No, I like that, MJ. I think that, that's good. Uh, yeah, I like that Thank a you. lot. I <laughs> really like this idea that the uh, the service industry, that it's just like so unreal that you are completely unmoored from this idea of the proletariat or the bourgeoisie. But that sort of leads me to the question of how do we deal with that in a practical level if we are seeing that complete disillusionment of the proletariat in the United States? Maybe that's too big of a question for a reading group on the manifesto and maybe capital will have a bit more to say about all of that.
2: I mean, it's worth considering just like in our day-to-day lives. Cause like, I mean, I'm, I'm a many, many years in the service industry and it, it does, I mean like the precariousness of it, the exhaustion of it, the, the tenuousness of those jobs. And I, I was very, very lucky in that I made carve myself a niche and I wasn't forced to work in chain restaurants and, and in these big businesses and stuff like that. But you don't have time or energy or money to give a shit about any of these things. I did because I cared about it beforehand. But, like, what are you going to do? Start a union? Hell no. They're going to fire you. And then you have to find another job that pays you $2.15 an hour.
3: No, hell yeah. That's what, this is what we're here for. I mean.
2: <laughs> no, and that's
1: interesting because this country specifically, the, the service industry in whatever you want to consider the service industry is becoming what's out there. We don't have much manufacturing left. It's down to people doing whatever service it is to support something else.
3: I mean, I think it's 60 to 70 percent of like America's economy right now is like is service industry. So it's, it's huge.
2: Yeah. To, to sort of carry that thought a little further. So I still technically work in the service industry. I just do it at a desk now. What's insane about working in the service industry, especially if you're working in these big places, you know, Starbucks, the, a grocery store is a great example. Like, a really substantial amount of what you get paid very little money to do is just emotional labor. Is the the actual and literal definition of emotional labor not like, you know, talking to your friends about their divorce or whatever. But, like, people are pissed. They're mad at their kids. They're mad at their partner. They're tired. Whatever. And you are the subject of that. You are the person at that point that it is socially acceptable to just shit all over. And you get paid 12 bucks an hour for that. So yeah, I mean, like, it's pretty easy. If you had no connection to politics at all, none, yeah, it would be pretty fucking easy to just take up whatever the fuck seemed like it would make your life easier. Because I'm going to be honest with you, it's exhausting. It'll destroy you. And anybody who's worked in a restaurant or a grocery store or a coffee shop knows that that's the case. Like, you will just be a husk of a person by the end of, like, a year. Yeah, I've
1: I've worked probably for the majority of my adult life in this weird intersection between skilled labor and service. And it's it's almost like a double whammy because you deal with customers, small business, working with home improvements, things like that. It, it is a service industry to a certain extent. Then you're trying to provide skilled labor, and I, I can completely understand why the majority of the population is checked out. Is It's so hard to create the space in your own brain to even comprehend any of this stuff after you've been working a mind-numbing job for eight or ten hours straight, and you just want to come home and go to sleep. But the problem is that if we all keep thinking like that, it'll just keep going. And I personally think that that's sort of how the
3: system is set up.
2: And then on top of it, you have even a subsection of that, which is this precarious labor pool that's just going to grow and grow and grow and grow. And grow. You know, Uber, DoorDash. And then, you know, people are on Twitter, you know, say like, oh, my Instacart chopper sucks. And it's like... <laughs> Man. You've paid for a friggin' servant
3: that you don't have to see and you're gonna bitch about it? Like, really?
2: It's just drawing more and more class distinctions or just creating lower and lower substrata of the human experience. Yeah.
1: I do personally think that people who work in the service industry treat other people that work in the service industry, whatever it might be, better than anybody
2: else. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, I have once tipped less than 20% and it was because the service was atrocious and I tipped 18%. <laughs> and I felt very bad about it.
3: Yeah, I'm not going to try to cosplay a certain experience because my experience is very limited. But I did work, you know, a service job as like, a you know, at a small hardware store for a little bit, you know, when I was younger. And just one distinct experience of like, you know, somebody feeling empowered and like just dressing me down in the middle of the store for like nothing. You know what I mean? And I was like, man, I never want to treat anybody like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, but going back to what you were saying, MJ, it's like, these people who, you know, have no control over their own lives, over-service people, get a moment of power where they can feel like the fucking boss for a moment, you know what I mean? And just dehumanize and treat
0: people that way. That's what makes something like Q maybe even attractive, is that they know something that nobody else knows. They're in control. They know that they're going to be as part of the storm and take back reality. It's like they're almost there. They just have latched onto the wrong party.
1: Exactly. And we're spinning way, way out of the uh, Communist Manifesto, but there are real conspiracies going on right now by the United States government, but they're not what Q wants us to believe they are.
3: You know, I think we could bring it back to the manifesto a little bit. I mean, just because, again, like, Going back to the section where he talks about the different kinds of socialisms and, like, the lower middle class. And I think if we just talk about, like, the petty bouge and, you know, when he describes, like, the lower middle class in terms of the small business owner. Again, I think that's a class that we saw swing to, you know, friggin' MAGA world and Q, right? Like, it's, you know, there's everybody from people flying in on jets to, again, middle class people to, you know, people who don't have anything. Part of the lumping, Right swing into this movement to protect their interests. And I think, you know, while Marx doesn't obviously use the word fascism or quasi-fascism at the time, I think he really hit on kind of a mode, a class reaction, you know, reaction on a class basis, depending on where people land, that kind of could take us to that point. He acknowledges that they recognize the massive contradictions and tendency of capitalism to create inequality, but they still end up reactionary, right, protecting capital. And I think particularly, he mentions, I think he's talking about the feudal thing, but like, He mentions kind of like going back to the old ways, and I think that's kind of like this whole thing, like from Make America Great Again to calls of historic masculinity in terms of fascism. Like, I think he hits on like early things, and I think it's elaborated more later on by people like Trotsky and uh, Echo and stuff like that, but I I don't know. I kind of saw this really like an early genesis of like an analysis of what could lead to that.
0: To build on that point and to draw it into the manifesto, it's this sort of, Getting halfway there, seeing some of the problems, but not seeing the solutions. And I think it's kind of poetic, and we kind of need to touch on this, and I think it might be a good closing segment to harp on, but on part two of section three, entitled in my translation, Conservative or Bourgeoisie Socialism, Marx is incredibly unkind to what he labels bourgeoisie socialism, which he describes as, to desire the existing state of society minus the revolutionary and disintegrating elements. So my questions are, how does this relate to the positions of the democratic socialists of America? We are not the revolutionary socialists of America. So are we just bourgeoisie shills? Are we not giving any of the real solutions here? Are we just propping up these bourgeoisie values? Or is the DSA even more of the critical utopian socialism that he equally derides in part three, but just for being misguided, not for being shills?
2: Um, unpopular answer. Yeah, kind of there are elements of DSA that are very much like, so what my translation says, one section of the bourgeoisie desires to redress social grievances in order to secure the continuation of bourgeois society. Uh, And then later, bourgeois socialists want to have the conditions of life of modern society without the necessarily resulting struggles and dangers. They want bourgeoisie without the proletariat. And that is... Yeah, I think, there, I think there are absolutely people in wings of DSA or schools of thought in DSA that are absolutely like, we don't want a proletariat revolution, we want middle class for everybody. And I mean, I would imagine that quite a lot of them have not read Marx.
3: Yeah. I had one note written at the end of that section. It was, Marx's consistent criticism of all of the socialisms he describes is the lack of a revolutionary tendency. I thought that was, in everything he described, that was the threat. So, I mean, for sure. And then I think particularly when you talk about the wings, maybe, some. I think some justifiably so, sometimes not so. But really, I mean, this idea that it's an extension and that the left wing of the Democratic Party, I mean, I certainly think that that's where some of that view could come from in terms of, you know, the bourgeois socialism, because you're still propping up this party and this system. I mean, by extension, this system, because you're propping up this dominant party that is not going to change things fundamentally in a revolutionary way. And I think that's where Mark says, this isn't this isn't what I'm talking about, you know,
0: to draw it into recent events, this is what really made me frankly upset hearing about Ocasio-Cortez donating money to basically right wing Democrats to keep them in Congress in their primaries. Fucking Connor Lamb. <laughs> yeah. It just it's so deeply disappointing and it really shakes my sort of faith in the idea that something can be accomplished through the Democratic Party. I want to say that the DSA is not just a bourgeoisie shill, even though there are obviously aspects or individuals or people that are associated with it that maybe are, but I'm really stuck on how far I think electoral politics can really push a better society.
1: Yeah, I'm starting to lose a lot of faith in electoral politics myself because I understand the DSA's position and some of the people that support the DSA that are in Congress With the system we have now, I think it's at least important to have a voice in it to a certain extent. Because I think, and this is not supporting or condoning the Democratic Party in any means, but I think the left does need to try their best to steer the Democratic Party from within. But I don't personally think that's going to ultimately do anything. I don't know that electoral politics as they have become, at this point, really do much to push a socialist
0: agenda. The thing that I keep coming back to is this idea of empowering labor through Congress. And it's just like this prize that keeps being dangled in front of us every so many years. I remember in 2008, just like truly believing that this card check legislation was going to be passed. They had 60 Democrats in the Senate. They had complete control of the House of Representatives. And it it wasn't even brought to a vote. I mean, I made the mistake of getting somewhat hopeful about the Alabama labor election. I'm letting myself get a little bit hopeful about the latest labor bill. Because if any of these things do pass, it does feel like something good could come of it. But is that sort of the game? Is that it's never going to pass?
3: It's like the fucking parliamentarian thing, right? Like, I mean, when... When Biden said something about that, the writing was on the wall. We can blame, you know, the the friggin' nutcase out of Arizona. We can blame Joe Manchin. But, like, the writing was already on the wall. The fact of the matter is, the fucking parliamentarian serves at the pleasure of Chuck Schumer, right? Like, Like, they they were setting that up for failure, but they were giving people in the party plausible deniability on this basis that, like, this person that we've never heard of before— can you know make this not happen it's, it's oh we want it we want we want it to happen we want the minimum wage to happen but oh the parliamentarian you know what under the uh, george bush administration the parliamentarian was fired when they said they couldn't cut taxes for the rich <laughs>
2: <laughs> my ultimate thing with the democratic party is like sure fine if it stems the bleeding do whatever but The forces of capital will always be more powerful. And the reason that the Democrats can't fucking do anything is because they are also the forces of capital. Like, if they wanted to, sure, yeah, they could pass the fucking PRO Act right now. Joe Biden could probably pass the goddamn PRO Act with an executive order, but they're not going to. Because they don't serve people. They don't serve labor. Right, yeah, that's it.
1: One thing I wonder about the PRO Act, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think currently, as the uh, law states, Solidarity strikes are not technically legal. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. And I think the Pro Act supposedly does away with that.
2: The Pro Act does a lot.
1: Even if you did away with that, with the state of labor today, would there be solidarity strikes with whatever strike might be happening? Because that's a big re that's a huge reason why we have anything today. Because one sector of the workforce would go on strike, and then everybody else would go on strike, and we'd shut the country down. And today, I wonder if there would be enough forces pushing labor to do something like that, because I think that's the way we really truly do start changing some things. I think we need general strikes on a frequent basis.
3: And I guess I'm not unionized or anything like that, but just from what I've heard from listening to different people's perspectives, I agree with you. That would be effective. I just don't know if the organization is there from what a lot of people are saying to really push that kind of thing that that would make a difference. But I don't think the left has enough organizing power at this point in time to really make that happen at this moment, which is why it's important to keep pushing. But at this moment, I don't know if that's there.
2: I think the fact that it would empower labor a lot is enough of a reason for them to fight as hard as humanly possible not to pass the PRO Act. The fact that it, from my understanding, <laughs> disclaimer, that it like kind of does away with a lot of right to work legislation, you know, and shit like that. Like, I don't know, just especially because I was reading recently about Homestead Strike and the the Great Railway Strike. They don't want that to happen. again. I said they, I don't know, it's so corny, but like the forces of capital don't want that to happen. And the forces of capital are people. They're people with addresses. They're people with a lot of money. They're going to spend that money on keeping their money.
3: And I guess just bringing it back to the Democratic Party, I know a lot of folks in DSA have done a ton of good work, like, you know, phone banking. Then they got Joe Manchin to co-sponsor. But Okay, so he's, what, 47? There's still three people that the Democratic Party is still negotiating within itself to kind of make this happen. But then on top of that, They've demonstrated no willingness to get rid of the filibuster, which would be required, as I understand, to make this happen. So, I mean, all this shit is performative at some level. Like, unless you can break down that huge barrier of 60 votes, they're negotiating with themselves, and they're really, it's all performative because they're not going to get rid of the major barrier that they need, even to get 50. I hate to be so down about it, (laughs) but, like, (laughs) I don't know.
2: The fact is that if this happens, it would be a big goddamn deal. It would be a big deal, and it would be really, really, really cool. Mm. So we have to fight really, really, really hard for it, but never expect it to win.
0: (laughs) Right. Whenever I'm in these kind of conversations or hear these conversations, I always think of a quotation that's attributed to Malcolm X, where he's asked about political parties and his support or rejection of them, and he just states, I believe there are two parties in the United States. There's the fox, and there's the wolf. The fox is going to tell you what you want to hear, and the wolf is going to eat you, but they're both going to eat you in the end, it depends on what you want to hear. And it feels very appropriate for this conversation.
2: It's one of the reasons that even through many fluctuations in my own personal like ideology, I always come back to libertarian socialism because I don't believe that... Well, well number one, I don't think that anybody should have power over anybody else. <laughs> I think that anybody who thinks that they should is a uh, suspect immediately. But also that like you can't configure a society that works its way from the top down you absolutely cannot do that and the only way to build the society that we want to see is through labor actions mutual aid dual power like these things that build power amongst individuals in the working class because well government's not going to do it for us
0: and this
1: is this is sort of one of the things that i wonder about marxism it was written in the 19th century you have to try your best to figure out what was going on then, what was going through their heads. It can be difficult sometimes to try to bring this into the context of what's going on today. But just in general, I think I might be leaning more towards MJ's philosophies. I don't know how much I trust anything centralized, which, of course, is the argument with Marxism. And depending on the interpretation of the text whose uh, translation you have, I guess you can say maybe that they were envisioning this to be sort of a pathway through to something more completely egalitarian, where there really isn't such centralized structure. I don't know, I, I struggle with, as far as Marxism goes, if that's really how the whole idea of centralized anything is where I personally
0: land. I think it's, it's really good. And in this first podcast, we're all sort of admitting that we are not set in any sort of ideological track. And I count myself among that. I think that's a really good way to sort of approach Marx and Engels is to sort of think about what they have to offer and how we can interpret this for our world. And it just goes back to, I think, the quotation I read earlier that they don't want this to be read as concrete suggestions on what you should do in your country and your place. You should think of these as means of understanding the world around you, and then you come to your solutions. I think we're going to be working through those solutions and how we can apply them in our lives as we read through that behemoth book that I'm staring at right now, Capital Volume 1.
2: I remember seeing something a long time ago. Somebody said, like, I've read a lot of Marx, but I've never read any Lenin. They said, well, I respect your dedication to history, but you're light on theory. And I do think of it as history, you know? Oh, yeah. It's a way of viewing history and theory is how you envision your way out of it.
3: We're back to Mao.
2: We're back to Mao.
3: <laughs> we are perceiving. We're figuring out how to apply it.
2: I have a secret soft spot for Mao. I love Mao.
3: <laughs> I loved on practice I loved it.
2: Yeah, it's fantastic. I found myself like, oh no, I really liked Mao's, uh, Mao wrote like on physical fitness, a study of physical education in China. And it's very much like, if you're a revolutionary, you should exercise. <laughs> it's very good. And so I bought a poster of Mao for my like basement gym. <laughs> Maoism is
1: kind of interesting because whether Mao was actually trying to or not, I just think that the way the East has been operating for millennia is different from the West. And I think some of the, those ideas just sort of
2: naturally saturated into Maoism. was reading something but basically it was like marx wrote the history and the kind of marx and engels kind of configured the worldview and then revolutionaries wrote for their country so you have like ho chi minh and you have mao and you have lenin and trotsky and all that i think that's so interesting i think that's such a like i think that's a really good way of viewing those theories not as like dogmatic like this is universal theory but like this is how i applied marxism in my society
0: I think that's what people use the Communist Manifesto as a means of dismissing Marxism is they pick on their concrete suggestions, the very things that they basically tell you not to care about in their introduction, that this is a way of thinking of the world, not a way of solving the world, uh, necessarily.
3: They think this is our dogma. They think this is our dogma. This is not our dogma. That That is not the point. That totally misses
0: the point.
2: Also, if you think that there is one dogma across the left...
0: You have never been to a meeting on the left. (laughs) (laughs) You don't know the left. (laughs) You don't live in this
2: reality. (laughs) Because actually, there's a lot of people on the left who aren't Marxists. (laughs) I disagree with them, but...
3: (laughs) I saw this interesting Venn diagram, and uh, this is the last thing I'll say, but it was... uh, It showed liberals, it showed conservatives, and it showed the left, and at the middle... The intersection of all three was hates the left.
2: <laughs> it's the lobsters, leftists, leftists, leftists. Well, I guess with that, <laughs> go on to your chapter and fight with all of your friends.